You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, where we shield you from lies and expose you to the truth, even if that truth is painful medicine, because we do not supply any political heroin, any political morphine. We give it to you foolproof. Because the only way to solve the problems in our country is to recognize the severity of the problem, not to simply ignore it or to think we've solved it. With that said, we're going to jump right into it today. I'm a little bit rushed for time because I'm going to be out Thursday. So I'm just trying to get a lot of extra things done, even though it's really been a quiet week news-wise. But as you all know, the courts never take off. And our sovereignty is still under attack. See, just because Congress is out and the news is kind of slow doesn't mean that the invasion has abated one bit. I wanted to continue the discussion we had from yesterday about the history of some of the past mass migration events that were deterred and stopped immediately much quicker after much less of a severe cost to America in terms of crime, culture, drugs, public charge, you name it. And how we had the will as a nation to be a sovereign nation. All sides pretty much understood that to varying degrees. We never allowed the courts to get involved. There's a lot on the on the docket today And before today is over, I want you guys to understand three points. Number one, nothing should ever trump sovereignty. Number two, you can't adjudicate yourself out of an invasion. And number three, an invasion through lawfare and migration is actually worse, at least on most levels, than a conventional invasion, the way you kind of view it with an army invading you. I want you to understand all those three points. Now, I have an article up. It's actually on the top left of Drudge. Drudge put it up. Why aren't we deporting illegal aliens who already have deportation orders? I got the full data set from my friends at the Immigration Reform Law Institute that they obtained from DOJ through a FOIA request. There's a total of 1,009,550 illegals in this country. Already have full deportation orders, despite how so hard it is to deport anyone, how long it takes. Those people already have gone through. They haven't been deported. 644,000 are from four countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico. In addition... If you account that for the next level, people with pending final orders, meaning they've already been ordered deported, but they're still appealing to the next level, the BIA, the Bureau of Immigration um, 
whatever they call it, Bureau of Immigration Appeals. So they already had their order, but they're still appealing it. That would rope in another roughly 1.5 million. A total of 2.5 million people in this country with either final deportation orders or pending final deportation orders. Where is the will, even these people, to expedite those dockets, the ones that aren't final but are close to it, and deport them, and certainly the ones that are final. And I I got to thinking about just all the history I know in immigration and what has happened, what even Democrat presidents have done in the past to deport, to exclude, to prevent people from coming here that don't belong here, that will do us harm. And... It just amazes me that we are in at the point where we now have to litigate one deportation at a time. And I was thinking, you know, a lot of people bristle at the fact, at just the mention of an invasion. Even on my side, even some colleagues of mine are like, ah, Daniel, don't call it an invasion. But as they always say, what these people don't understand is that in the 21st century, no one's going to invade us in a conventional way, just given the asymmetry in terms of our technology and our military capabilities. This is what it's going to look like, where you're going to have NGOs and often foreign countries involved in you know, weaponizing immigration, weaponizing mass migration of poor people to the country. They come here, they bring in drugs, gangs, We're going to talk about that. That's our next article out today. Five MS-13 members, all from El Salvador. Three of them are UACs that we treat like refugees. Stabbed another gang member a hundred times and set the body on fire in Prince George's County, Maryland. The cell itself was from Fairfax County, Virginia. We have this all over the place. And yet we tolerate it. It takes forever to deport anyone. And I got to thinking, why does it take forever to deport people? What has happened? When did the American people ever vote for something like this? And the answer is we really never did vote for it. And every time we held votes and actually passed laws, it actually was purported to do the opposite, to expedite the process, to prevent lawfare. To prevent judicial review. That's what the entire IRA IRA was in 1996. So today we're going to discuss both on the front end and how we've deviated from our ironclad principle not to let anyone in who doesn't belong here. And then on the back end, the people that clearly don't belong here in terms of deporting them, on both sides, we've essentially shut down immigration enforcement. We've allowed lawfare to do it, and, and really, statute says the opposite. And why, why am I harping on this so much? Why do I like saying what's not the problem or what's not the solution? Is because that's the only way you're going to solve the real problem and come to a real solution. It's not about passing statutes. We passed them already, and the courts are ignoring them. And our political will has waned so much that we tend to feel bad for everyone in the world except for our own American people that we feel 
Sometimes it's the court. Sometimes it's not even the courts. We just feel obligated now to do everything, to bring everyone in. I know they'll talk about we don't have the resources to deport all these people. But I'll tell you, some of it is also the will. The Central American families, even the ones that already got the ridiculous, unconstitutional, against statute, juiced up due process, we view them as a protected class and we just don't want the PR of deporting them. That's the truth. And I I want to give you guys an interesting perspective before we get back to yesterday's show and Bill Clinton and the Haitian boat migration and what we could learn from that. I just want to go over something that might seem to be a hyper-technical point, but it's very important nonetheless. If you remember, we created the Department of Homeland Security supposedly to coordinate all of our law enforcement better to protect the homeland. What a disaster it's been. It resulted in the exact opposite of what it was sold to be. The agencies are more divided and spread out and duplicative than ever. There's more interagency and now interdepartment rivalry because the irony is inevitably they didn't leave all law enforcement with protecting the homeland with DHS, FBI, DA, and then the immigration courts are still in DOJ. But I I got to thinking about this when I was thinking of Operation Wetback in 1954 when President Eisenhower directly or indirectly removed over a million illegal aliens in just a few months. And now, now, there's questions over how many were deported. There, there's a, lot, a strong case that it could be only a couple hundred thousand were physically deported. The rest left on their own, but that's even better. You know, because their whole argument, oh, it's draconian, or we don't have the resources. Well, that's the point. You do what you can, and then you know, you tell the people that we don't want you here anymore that you are illegal. They'll they'll go home, and they won't come. That's our problem. We don't make it illegal. Not so much in the laws. It's it's in our policies. So anyway, I was thinking to myself, it's so doggone hard to deport even the most vile criminal alien. How is it that they were able to deport so many people so quickly? And it's like there was nothing. There was no due process, no adjudication. Now, some people will say, well, yeah, that was back in the Wild West when we were a terrible country and we didn't give anyone rights. But it's not true. This wasn't the 1890s. 1954 is a very significant date because it's after 1952. What was 1952? That was when the Immigration Nationality Act, the INA, was codified into law. That Those are the governing statutes today. Now, they were modified a couple times. But actually, mainly to, to, to be made even stricter in 1996 in particular, than the war in 1952. So more or less, it's still intact. So under the statutory authority of the INA, if he was able to deport over a million people within a few months in 1954, why is it that we can't even deport the over a million with final deportation orders, much less the fact that so many 
don't get those orders because they're able to legally gum up the works, including the most vile criminals, for years. When did when did the people through their elected representatives ever pass such a law? It's a little complicated, but the answer, more or less, is not really. We never really passed such a law. Obviously, as you all know, the courts did this, but I want to trace the origins of this problem back a little bit for a little, little bit farther back than even that. There were two watershed years that really screwed things up. 1983, and then, what was it, 2003, 2004, when we created the Department of Homeland Security. It used to be that all immigration activities, immigration law, the enforcement, the adjudication, the processing, every aspect was controlled by one agency within one department the famous INS, Immigration Naturalization Services. It was essentially around since 1891 in the iteration that existed for most of our history in its proper form was 1933. And it existed until the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And they did everything. Border Patrol was under INS. What we call ICE now was under INS. So border apprehensions, interior enforcement, detention, deportation, and then also just, you know, visas, naturalization, citizenship documents, anything dealing with that was all under the INS. And it makes sense because all these issues tied together you have to have a full vision as to what's going on so you don't have so you have the same understanding the same data the same mentality you don't have the interagency rivalries you're all swimming uh, you know in, in the same direction so right now we have three separate branches border patrol ice and uscis which does the processing and everything but that was all under the INS, which was all under DOJ. Now, prior to 1983, interestingly enough, there was there's a fourth agency that was also part of the INS. And that is the actual adjudication of any illegal immigrant claims. Okay. In other words, we didn't have what is called EOR, not the donkey and Winnie the Pooh, E-O-I-R. That is the Executive Office of Immigration Review. Those are the immigration courts. Not to be mixed up with Article Three courts, they're the, um, you know, the administrative courts. That's when we started creating formal immigration judges. And then the whole BIA, the appeal appellate body. People forget that it used to be you didn't go before an immigration judge in the way we view it these days. 
you went before an INS agent. In other words, picture what we would call nowadays Border Patrol or ICE. You would get to say your claim. Well, okay, why are you here? economic. Uh, okay, you're out of here. Done. And we deport you. The guy is doing, the law enforcement agents were in charge of it. They held the keys. In 1983, and this was Ed Meese, and I don't know why this is part of a broader restructuring of DOJ. So he might have had an unintended, or he might have had a, a good reason for it, but missed the unintended, unintended consequences on immigration. They created a separate brand agency called EOR and took the adjudication out of the INS's hands. And what that did is it created an entire independent agency that's just for treating illegals as if they have a court case. Now, legally, really, an immigration judge should be just like an INS or an ICE agent in that they're not an Article Three judicial branch judge. They're just a DOJ official. But politically, that's not how they got treated. Politically, they wear robes. They have courtrooms. We treat them like courts. And we've essentially given them all this due process. That was all created executively. Now, yes, once they did that, so later on, the subsequent updated statutes to the INA, we kind of codified Eeyore and countenanced it and deal with it now. But as always, that first breach was not, it was against statute. Since since the beginning of our times, first the colonies, then the states, and then in the 1880s, 1890s, the feds took it over. It was an immigration official, not an immigration judge. The only right you have is to open your mouth at some point to some immigration official and say, look, here's why I'm here. And all we have to do is listen for three minutes and if you don't have a prima facie claim of being a citizen or having any clear right to be here, you're out of here. Not three years later, not three months later, three minutes later. You are out of here. That is what any sane country is. A lot of, again, now it's the Article Three courts that took everything over. So even if you get good rulings at Eeyore, it doesn't matter. They'll then now they just appeal to the Article Three courts and and the Ninth Circuit and all these places. They just tie us up forever. We're going to talk about that a little later. But it started, in my view, with the creation of Eeyore and this notion of an immigration judge. You have the right to be. See, you understand how it's very easy where politically we created this notion that you have a right to a judge and a robe and a court and a lawyer and all this stuff. So now it's just transmogrified to downright having them come before Article Three courts. But I'm here to tell you that that INA, the reason why you had Operation Wetback in 1954 and there were no problems is because the INS controlled everything. And that's how it should be. You don't, invaders don't have due process rights. You can't adjudicate your way out of an invasion. Until this generation, we understood that. But then we created these immigration courts. And that created an entire cottage industry of immigration law where they would game it out. And then the immigration lawyers would become the immigration judges. See, if you have the INS doing it, it's mainly law enforcement. So, like, you know, that's just not the natural home of 
Soros organizations. They don't get involved in becoming officers. But if you separate out the adjudication to a legal body, that that creates a lawfare cesspool. Then it just went downhill from there. The second stage is then we created the um, Department of Homeland Security and we stupidly didn't even bring over Eeyore to DHS. So Eeyore is not not only an independent agency of immigration enforcement, it's in a different department. Eeyore is still at DOJ and then you have a scattershot at DHS of three different agencies instead of the INS. CBP, which in itself has a rivalry between Border Patrol and what's called um, OFO, Office of Field Operations. Those are the the blue shirts. They wear blue shirts. They're at the points of entry. The green shirts are mainly between the points of entry, the um, Border Patrol. Then you have ICE. Then you have USCIS, which shows the visas, the citizenship. And that's how ICE is now a joke. So this is how, you know, ICE can't do anything. You, you could get a great ICE director and they're basically just custodians, like jail keepers. All they could do is detain at the orders of, of Eeyore. So it's Border Patrol apprehends, then they give to ICE to detain, and then ICE has to give over to USCIS. See, there's one thing if you have a separate body to do naturalization ceremonies, to do visas, you know, like legal immigration. But the problem is USCIS does asylum adjudications. That's a border issue. I mean, ICE should be doing that. But no, USCIS gets to do that. So that created a deep state of asylum adjudicators which in, within USCIS. And then Eeyore oversees that. And there's two layers of, of appeals. And then now they could just take it straight to the Article 3 District, Appellate, and Supreme and it never ends. The people never voted for this nonsense. But that that is how we don't deport anyone anymore. And it is so hard. Now, I know I'm exaggerating. We do deport people, but that's only because we have so many illegals. So yeah, a small percentage wind up getting deported eventually. Takes forever. So I just figured I'd give you that brief history here. That That's on the, the lack of sovereignty on the deportation end. An understanding that you cannot adjudicate your way out out of an invasion. See, if you have an invasion, here's why an invasion is not as bad. Then we treat it like an invasion, and you take your military and you push back their line. They might have burned buildings, they might have killed people, but it's temporary, and you could rebuild that. What's the cost of permanently embedding millions of the most impoverished Aliens with the drugs. I mean, I cannot even go through all the stories of illegals being the top guns on so much of the drug trafficking. All the gang stories that came in with the UACs. We we pay for the rope to hang ourselves. All these Central American teens that are MS-13 members, we resettled them as refugees. It's irrevocable. Irrevocable. You cannot adjudicate your way out of an invasion. But this invasion, we don't treat it like an invasion, which is why it's worse than an invasion. But then there's the initial entry level. So you're like, all right, once they're here, we're screwed. 
So let's prevent them from coming. At least if we've lost our history of the plenary power doctrine on deportations as a sovereign nation, at least we'll continue to be righteous on exclusions. Not at all. You go through the history of what happened with the Haitian boat people. And I'm going to have an article on this tomorrow. There's a lot of amazing stories to learn. Truly amazing stories out of this. Again, let's go through the history. Starting in the Carter administration, you had, along with the Cubans, you you had Haitian people coming over on boats. And, you know, there weren't nearly as many as you have Central Americans today. When Reagan came in, he shut it down. He started directing the Coast Guard to prevent them from coming on our soil. And that worked to shut it down for a decade. Beginning in 91, 92, when you had the um, coup, a military coup against the Artisan government in Haiti, that's when you had the boat people began again. And right away, you know, I, I think I said yesterday, after only a few thousand had landed um, in South Florida, I don't think it's only, I, I don't think any landed. Right away, they sent out the Coast Guard, they interdicted them, they turned them back, they boarded their ships, and and even the ones that they adjudicated, that they agreed to adjudicate, do you know where they adjudicated them? They took 12,000 of them to Guantanamo Bay. Okay, this is not 1954, this is 1993. May 24th, 1992, George H.W. Bush issued what was known as the Kennebunkport Order, Executive Order 12807, that we will not let these people in. And it was obvious. It was obvious that nothing trumps American sovereignty. No treaty, no law, even if the law would say that. You can't have an invasion. And they didn't let them land. They didn't let them land. So what happened was President Clinton called the policy cruel and illegal. And he campaigned in 1992 on overturning that policy. Then Clinton won in November. What happened in November and December? It created an entire industry, just like with Obama when he won. And it sent signals to them that, hey, um, you know, we're going to come. And they started building boats. And there were reports that 125,000 were prepared to leave. On January 15th of 1993, five days before he took office, Clinton delivered a radio address on Voice of America Radio, piped into Haiti, and said, you cannot come. I'm going to continue H.W. Bush's policy. Remember Alcee Hastings? Extremely liberal, Congressional Black Caucus member from Florida. At the time, he defended Clinton because Clinton's base was saying, oh, he flip-flopped. He said, quote, when you're faced with new realities, then you have to deal with them. Clinton, the candidate, did not have the benefit of much information that President-elect Clinton has. He saw an invasion. It was great to talk about how compassionate you are, but he saw the problems. He's like, we just cannot allow this to land on America's shores. 
And he continued it. And they took it to court. A lower court ruled with the illegal immigrants, but did not put a nationwide injunction on, by the way. So this policy was never shut down. And then eventually, 93 went to the Supreme Court. Eight to one decision, they affirmed 212F, 215A, inherent executive powers. There's nothing in statute or a treaty that could ever prevent the president from denying people entry into our country. That was it. And what was amazing is that the president pointed out, he made very clear that we're going to try to, I mean, I'm talking about Clinton, we're going to try to get the guys that are legitimate asylees. And even those, again, they did not bring them to our shores. They set up more offices in Haiti. Like we've been saying, you can't come. You know, all things equal, you know, we'll allow people to come here and declare asylum on our shores. But if, if it's going to be a mass migration event that's prima facie, not asylum, we're not going to sit and play Amelia Bedelia like, oh, but they're decl- they're asserting it. So we have to let them in pending adjudication and catch a release and have uh, drugs and migrants and cartels and public charge and disease. And everything on the no, they didn't allow any of them, but he made clear that the ones that were economic migrants, they weren't even going to deal with. Which tells you that we understood back then that the law is not Amelia Bedelia, meaning even without the override of 212F to completely shut off immigration and inherent executive to, to authorities to stop things at our border, even if you didn't have that, but just asylum law in general, if prima facie what is happening on the face of it is not asylum, you don't have to destroy your country over it. And by the way, Clinton said this when, let me tell you, let me tell you, there was a more legitimate case of asylum with the Haitians than there are today with Central Americans. With the Haitians... There was a coup, and supporters of Artizide were afraid that they would be persecuted. And indeed, 10,000 of those processed at Guantanamo, about 30%, eventually won their cases and were brought here. So you see there was much more legitimacy relative to the Central Americans where there's zero legitimacy. Migration is down, down, down. I have an article on that coming out today. Uh, not migration, um, uh, homicide rates. And again, homicide rates are never a criterion for, for any asylum. It's persecution, individualized persecution or group persecution. It's 0% of these people. It's a lie. But even violence is down. It's all economic migration. But you see, even legitimate asylees, we couldn't have the American people on the hook for a catch and release and the poverty and potential crime and problems, we weren't going to do it. Even a Democrat president who ran on a liberal platform changed his mind. And even these people were processed at Guantanamo. Everyone else was turned turned back. You got to apply in your, own, in your home country. 
That's what we did. It was very simple. You don't have to countenance an invasion as asylum. And even if you did, you could shut it off. That's the simple lesson. Trump needs to give a speech in the Oval Office and announce, talk about this, talk about the law, talk about the Supreme Court case. And by the way, do you know who was the Attorney General at the time that this order was issued in Haiti? William Barr, the current Attorney General. He should be very well familiar with this. Eight to one Supreme Court ruling. Why do we keep going? Why does the left always get to litigate again and again? They never lose. The only difference is you're going to say this is a land border and that was C. But it doesn't matter. There's no reason why we can't put our military on our border and stop anyone from coming in. Especially in Texas, even though it's pretty shallow in many areas, it's nothing like an ocean, but you do have the Rio Grande River. We're picking people up who swim there. No, push them back and announce that you have to apply in your home countries or in Mexico. Done. At some point, you have to stand up to these lower courts. I just don't get it. The suicide of a nation is unbelievable. And again, like I noted before, if there's some that sneak in. So first of all, if you're caught right away, you're not someone who has ties to our country that's caught on the interior. So it's as if you didn't affect entry. So it's like you're standing on the threshold of entry, which if Trump says you're inadmissible, you're that then and he has that power to say that, that we're denying entry, you should not have a claim to asylum. It overrides it. It's that simple. If you're gonna poo-poo what I'm saying, then there's nothing we can do. Then we're done. And again, even the people that wind up getting in, you feel like you you want to process them? That's the Nicaraguan 1989 migration. Set up the tent cities right on the spot. Rocket docket of people there. And get them out of here. Oh, they're going to have new lawsuits? Well, they're always going to have new lawsuits. Again, nothing trumps sovereignty of a nation. A lawfare invasion of migration is worse than a real invasion and you cannot adjudicate your way out of an invasion. With that background, you're going to be able to understand a very controversial opinion I have today on social media. A lot of my friends and colleagues and even the news is saying that Trump won a massive immigration case at the Supreme Court where the government can detain criminal aliens with past criminal records after their release from custody. We won an immigration case. And if you read the actual opinion of what the majority wrote versus what the concurrence of Thomas and Gorsuch wrote, you're going to see what I've been telling you so many times. That with the lower courts and the legal profession poking literally a thousand holes in the INA, a thousand different ways to block the deportation at every different stage and every different micro stage of the stage. 
and how despite statutes in the INA that were explicitly written in 1996 to block judicial review, the courts still review it. And we lose almost all of them in the lower courts. And it takes five years for the Supreme Court to even bring up a few of them. And even the few we win, it forecloses one or two or three of the thousand avenues they use. And then even when they do it, they don't do it categorically so they could keep coming back for more in that very micro issue, much less the broader immigration and sovereignty issue. That's the general point that people are missing. Like I say all the time, the difference between the way Thomas writes his opinion and the way usually the majority with the other guys like Roberts and Kavanaugh, in this case, even Alito, is the difference between doing surgery and removing 100% of a tumor versus 10% of a tumor. As, as you all know, even if you remove 95% of a tumor, the difference between removing 95% of a tumor and 100% is 100% of the difference. It's, it's all the difference. It's everything. It's meaningless. It, it comes back right away. It, 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 you know, you got to remove it all. Certainly, if you just remove a narrow sliver, too many people don't understand where the barometer is. And this is where legally and politically, so many conservatives think progress is when we're actually losing. The entire premise of this case was illegitimate. The entire premise of this case was illegal to even view, even, view, even to, re- to review. Today, in a, a majority of judges said that the courts have the right to review cases against detaining criminal aliens that have already served time for doing other crimes other than being here illegally in preparation for deportation, despite three statutes in the INA explicitly prohibiting the courts from ever reviewing these cases precisely because in 1996 it was a bipartisan understanding that we need to stop this lawfare and that you couldn't adjudicate yourself out of an invasion. So we win one thing. So they they, they actually all affirm that, no, the courts could view this. But there were five judges that on the merits said, no, ICE could detain without a bond hearing here. So what happens is the lower courts steal, you know, the the Constitution and the law is 100% on the citizen side. The lower courts put it 100% on the illegal alien side. The Supreme Court walks back what the lower courts did 20, 30%. And our side's like, we won in the Supreme Court. Well, I I guess it's better than having not won in the Supreme Court, but you're not looking at it. We all knew the Supreme Court would overturn this. Like, that was obvious. But A, it took five freaking years to do this with irreparable harm to our nation with criminal aliens. And B, they did it on the narrowest grounds. The lower courts go wide, the Supreme Court goes narrow. I don't mind if the Supreme Court goes narrow if you didn't have the lower courts. So what basically happens is the lower courts are like, immigration enforcement is unlawful. Basically, you can't have any immigration laws. And then that's basically the four liberal justices on, on the Supreme Court as well. It, but basically, illegals have endless rights. Okay? Supreme Court's like, well, no, you could review. They don't, not in this case, but, well, all that does is allow them to keep coming back. And they do. I wanted to give over generally what happened. Now, let me explain, try to explain ex- explicitly with, uh, specifically without getting too 
far into the weeds, these cases get very complicated with immigration law. But um, this case, Nielsen v. Priop, Priap, however you pronounce it. 2014, 2014, more than four years ago. You can imagine this. So we're talking about criminal aliens here. Let's say you're here illegally, and then um, <clears throat> you go and uh, you commit robbery or burglary. You're arrested, and you're tried, you're convicted, and you serve five years in prison. Well, you know, look, we all agree that when you get out of prison, then you need to be deported. Now, part of the problem is because there's so many illegals and because the same NGOs that gum up the works on deportation work with these countries to have them defy us and make it hard for them to accept our people, the illegals back, it takes a while to deport them. So therefore, you have to detain them. Otherwise, they're just going to run free. So obviously, anyone who's here, not just illegally, but committed a crime, and they finish the jail sentence, uh, prison sentence, so they should be immediately handed over to ICE. Now, again, this is what the friends of mine who think this is a victory, they don't understand. They view like one case in a vacuum. They don't understand that the, the political open borders movement and the legal open borders movement is one movement, and they work together. They create policies that generate certain legal opportunities, and then they get the courts to create the legal opportunities so they could get the policies to drive a truck through them and bring more illegals here and then keep more here and prevent deportations. And one of the ways they do that is with sanctuary cities. We've discussed this a number of times. What sanctuary cities do is they don't inform ICE. I mean, can you imagine that? A a murderer, robber, rapist, drug trafficker, serve time in prison, any easier illegally, they won't turn over to ICE. And you say, well, why doesn't ICE just monitor the jails? Well, they're kicking them out of jails some places. And also, it's like you you have to realize even if ICE tried to monitor everything, For example, what one ICE officer explained to me is that it's very complicated with all this good time credit and all these stupid leniency programs. It's not like, oh, a guy has five-year sentence, so on this date, we'll mark down and have an alert in our ICE system to go and get the guy from jail. They could let him go at any time, and and the – the more they're trying to purposely evade ICE, the more they're playing games and trying to game that out in a way that ICE can't get them. So then ICE has to go at some point and they find out about the guy. It could be days later. It could be months later. It could be years later. Now they're like, aha, you see, you're trying to re-detain the guy. He's entitled to a bond hearing because it's too far after the initial criminal proceeding. And really, it's a joke. They caused the problem. And that's what the Northern District in in California, as well as a district in Washington State, ruled. And they enjoined this and forced bond hearings and the release of countless criminal aliens doing countless numbers of avoidable crimes for four and a half years until we got relief from the Supreme Court. That in itself is a problem. Even if the Supreme Court would eventually categorically uproot these cases. That in itself is something people are missing. That they could always get a lower court to shut down enforcement for five years until we get this to Supreme Court. 
and have irreparable, irrevocable harm to our country. That in itself will never be addressed, no matter how many people you have in the Supreme Court, if you don't ignore lower court supremacy. But then, it's worse than that. They don't go the categorical route. Think about it. I've mentioned this a number of times. Rodriguez v. Jennings, or Jennings v. Rodriguez. That was another case we won at the Supreme Court last year. A similar case. Where they said the people, the criminal aliens in ICE custody that are being detained pending deportation because it takes a while, they're entitled to bond hearings every six months to be released. Again, five years because of the Ninth Circuit and California judges before we got relief. Finally, we won. And everyone's like, literally, the headlines from the media and my colleagues were the same thing last year in the Jennings case. But the question is, then why do we need this case? That should have foreclosed on this avenue. But no, it's slightly different, you see, because that was bond hearings of the guys that were already in ICE detention. These are the guys that ICE is re-apprehending after a gap in the time when the sanctuaries released them. There are no two cases are alike. This is where an understanding of what happened at the Supreme Court today is relevant. Thomas wrote a concurrence and Gorsuch joined him. There's one sentence where Thomas opens his um, his opinion, his concurrence, I mean, And if you understood that, you would understand only if you have five Clarence Thomases are you going to shut down this nonsense. I continue to believe that no court has jurisdiction to decide questions concerning the detention of aliens before final orders of removal have been entered, period. Done. And he cites three statutes that strip the courts. But Alito, writing an opinion... For the five justices, and only Thomas and Gorsuch disagree with this, they're like, no, no, they hem and haul, they have all sorts of reasons, oh, we have jurisdiction to hear the case. But on the merits, the, the government's right in this case. Do you understand what that does? Imagine cutting off the head of a thousand-head snake that could constantly grow more heads. You, can, you can't adjudicate your way out of an invasion like that. It's the same thing in Rodriguez. Thomas said the same thing, but the other justices disagreed. And that's why you had this new case, Nielsen v. Preap, and why you're going to have the next thousand. And there'd be one thing if you didn't have universal injunctions or class certifications of um, class action lawsuits for illegals where they could, you know, it's one thing if you just get declaratory judgment but you don't actually put an injunction on it. So, okay, it doesn't harm us. But if pending, the, even when you know the Supreme Court's going to overrule it, pending it, the lower court's opinion goes into effect, you can't have a country that way. So today, they affirmed, I mean, that's not a victory. I'm sorry. I want to underscore this. Read Kavanaugh's two-page concurrence. Kavanaugh wrote, wrote a bizarre separate concurrence. He didn't join Thomas and, and Gorsuch, but a bizarre concurrence, two pages, 
literally refuting my friends and the, the media who say this is such a big victory for the rule of law and immigration. It's not. I write separately to emphasize the narrowness of the issue before us, and in particular to emphasize what this case is not about. And he went on to list a litany of all sorts of restrictions and stupid recent cases that have restricted deportations and said, this doesn't foreclose on any of that. So it's not, you don't have to speculate what I'm saying. Kavanaugh says it blatantly, which by the way is another indication of a pattern we've noticed, we've seen several times from Kavanaugh that he's like Roberts and that he's obsessively virtue signaling. Yes, I believe in every bad Supreme Court opinion, even the ones that are just a year or two or three old, like he did with Hellerstadt. You know, this case is not about whether a non-citizen may be detained. This kid is is like, it's not about Zavidas, meaning he likes Zavidas. Go read it. Page 32 of the PDF. It's out of control, folks. I'm sorry. I could lie to you. I'm not doing this to try to be Eeyore and to say, oh, what, what's a win is really a loss and to try to always give bad news. It's that there's a policy outcome here because my colleagues think we're, we won. The courts, courts are no problem. We're winning. They don't realize. Also, too many of these stupid people never even heard of this case and they just follow it once you have a Supreme Court ruling. They don't understand that if you look on net, we've lost. Again, if the Constitution of Statute is 100% on our side and the lower courts strip 100% of that away from us and then the Supreme Court walks back the lower courts stripping a certain percentage. Did we win? No. You got to look at it in totality and that's just one case. That's just one area of one part of one stage of deportation of criminal aliens. Never mind the ones that don't have separate criminal convictions that they're creating all sorts of rights for them. It's unbelievable. You can't win this. Everyone's like laughing. Ha ha ha. The Ninth Circuit was slapped down again. They're not paying it. There are a hundred, probably more than a hundred cases where the executive branch is destroying our sovereignty, both in terms of exclusions and deportations because of a Ninth Circuit order that is still in effect to this day that downright the Supreme Court agreed to uphold has refused to grant cert, has yet to grant cert, or even in cases where they ruled the other way, they came back in very similar cases and they're doing it again and again and again. They're not, my my friends are not seeing the forest from the trees. They just don't get it. Like the idiot who looks at someone pointing to the moon and he focuses on the finger and not the moon. You just don't get it. Look, I'll celebrate one big victory at the courts if you had five justices saying what Clarence Thomas said. Meaning if you don't go cut the head snake off at the head, either on standing or jurisdiction stripping, that the, the courts cannot hear these cases, 
It's meaningless. They'll come back. It's not hypothetical. This is what's happening policy-wise and legally. And the sanctuary states like California, all the areas that have most of the illegal immigrants in the country are working hand in glove with immigration lawyers to go and create policies that make it hard for ICE to apprehend, to detain, to deport, which creates a self-fulfilling prophecy, which opens up more legal avenues. They can say, oh, you're indefinitely detaining, you're doing this, oh, it violates this, due process. And they come back again and again and again. And then you have the Supreme Court after five years of destruction, like, Kavanaugh, I have to, I cannot overstate how narrow, narrow, this is very narrow. Again, I'll take a narrow Supreme Court victory if we didn't have the lower courts doing what they're doing. This is how the other side is first and goal at our one yard line with an unlimited number of tries. They only have to win one time. We have to win forever. One time they get a victory. And believe me, they got victories from the Supreme Court. Many of them. Gorsuch screwed us in a couple of them. Even Gorsuch. Much less the others. Roberts for sure. They're irrevocable. They'll take 200 years of plenary power doctrine, of sovereignty doctrine, overturn it, we're done. But even where we win a defensive victory, remember, there's a victory of like, you know, the labor union case in California where where we went on judicial offense. We struck down, so to speak, their union laws. So that's a victory. This is just defensive. They wanted to do this. We It was like, you know, you blocked the pass in the end zone. Okay, now I have a million more tries. The court didn't yet go there. But again, the more the lower courts create this momentum, the more Roberts and Kavanaugh are swayed as it becomes in vogue in the legal profession to grant more and more constitutional rights in in the context of immigration and exclusions and deportation hearings. This is how we've gone from the INS. What's essentially an ICE guy just saying, hey, what's your story? Okay, you have no claim. You're out of here. To now having immigration judges and then Article Three judges, endless appeals on every single stage of every single process of deportation, when in itself those processes are often made up and were made up over the years and there was no democratic process to which the people ever agreed to them. That, my friends, is stolen sovereignty. And you know what? Really, when I said there's three principles, there's really four principles that we discussed today. One, again, you can't adjudicate yourself out of an invasion. Nothing trumps sovereignty of a nation. An invasion through lawfare and migration is worse than a conventional invasion. But there's a fourth one. And that is unless we believe in our own sovereignty and push back against the lawfare wholesale, wholesale reject the notion that the courts have jurisdiction over this, we're done. No amount of new statutes will change anything. Because Congress did this. What do you think 1996 was all about? Passed unanimously. Yet only two justices are willing to recognize it. One of the statutes kicked the courts out of any case in this stage of deportation, even um, even constitutional claims, not just statutory claims, constitutional claims. 
1252b9 bars judicial review of, quote, all questions of law and fact, including interpretation and application of constitutional and statutory provisions arising from any action taken or proceeding brought to remove an alien from the United States, you know, except for review of a final order. But any pre-final order stage, there's no judicial review. And we still have not affirmed that. And in, implicitly, seven of nine justices, I mean, not implicitly, explicitly, said, no, the courts have an angle, multiple angles. You know, the, the, there's one thing if we had a five to four ruling where everyone ruled with Clarence Thomas today. So you're like, look, there's many, many other angles, but at least this angle of pre-final order detention in order to deport of criminal aliens in these circumstances where sanctuaries release them, you know, for this long, at least we foreclosed this. No, it didn't. And that's the thing. These smart lawyers will read the hemming and hawing and narrowness of they wrote, and they will carefully write their next brief and their next case around this. And we're going to keep doing this. We cannot afford this as a nation. We just cannot afford this as a nation. No amount of statute writing will help. Nor do we have time for it. At some point, someone needs to make this clear to the president. I don't think he realizes it. I'm sure the president's going to see this and say, oh, and I don't blame him. He doesn't know the nuances of this. You really have to understand immigration policy, immigration law, the game of the courts. Um, this is the game. Meanwhile, you know, they think, oh, we're winning the courts. It's not true. And, and by the way, let me give you another example of this. Let me give you a perfect example. Perfect example. Remember we saw the same thing with Masterpiece. Oh, finally the courts affirmed religious liberty and property rights. But not really. You read the majority opinion written by Roberts. Well, it was written by Kennedy. Kennedy, actually, in that case. And it was basically, no. Bake the, bake the damn cake. It just... Don't say the word damn. Say, could you please bake the cake? And if you ask nicely and the guy doesn't want to do it, then you have a claim against him. I mean, the ACLU heralded as a victory, and guess what? They think, all right, well, Daniel, that was just because of Anthony Kennedy, but now that we got Kavanaugh, we got a better um, panel, now we're going to have a stronger opinion. Well, guess what? The Supreme Court denied cert in a case where a Hawaiian court forced this wasn't a federal court it was, I think it was a Hawaiian state court forced a private business owner to service a gay wedding and um, they allowed it to stand they didn't take up the case and that's what I'm telling you for every immigration case we win at the Supreme Court I got news for you we lose another case even at the Supreme Court. And then there's 10 other cases that they just tacitly allow to stand. But then even the few we win, 
it's so narrow that taken together with the other modus operandi of the courts, you know, if you don't go after standing, you don't go after the jurisdiction to adjudicate the case, it, it it's, again, I know to, to those that see this headline like, Daniel, how do you poo-poo this? Isn't something better than nothing? But if you understand this, this is not something. This is if you look in totality, we're going negative, where the Supreme Court is agreeing to 70% of the illegitimacy of the lower courts. That's a problem. You know, there's one thing if we're doing judicial offense, we're trying to affirm rights against their policies and their actions and their governmental laws. And, you know, we want it to go a certain amount, you know, and the Supreme Court only did this much. Like you only have the right to carry this much. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. But um, that's not what's happening here. They're they're blessing what the lower courts are doing. It's like, everyone's like, oh my gosh, the lower, this is absurd. They'll get slapped down. The reason why the Ninth Circuit does is because they don't get slapped down. They don't get, um, you know, they don't get, uh, they, they, they just don't get rebuked. If you read this, this is not a rebuke of the Ninth Circuit. It's a very close thing. All right. We weren't that far off. And that's what keeps happening. No one puts them on notice. Now, I don't know if Alito wrote this because he agreed with it or because he had to take into account Roberts. I don't know. But I will tell you, if I remember correctly, in Patrick v. Zink, another jurisdiction stripping case, it wasn't immigration. I remember, again, Thomas was the most hawkish on jurisdiction stripping, then Gorsuch, and then the others were far behind him. Look, we speaking about losing battles, I mean, the Trump administration put out stuff yesterday on basically what I call common core of higher education. All this stuff about, oh my gosh, all this nanny say stuff. Then you got the Cradle Act with Ivanka Care. We have lost what it means to be a conservative. But then again, forget about conservatism. We've lost what it means to be a sovereign nation altogether. Tomorrow, we're going to have Jason Jones back on the show to discuss the latest at the border, the cartels, designating cartels of terrorists. Let me know what questions you want me to ask him. Um, the guy's an encyclopedia on this stuff. So you could email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Till tomorrow, thank you for listening. God bless you all. 